It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Would you like to be inspired to not only help yourself, but to reach out and help others all around you too? And would you like to learn six ways to tap into the best version of yourself? Today's special guest, Rabbi Daniel Cohn's inspirational message is for everyone and anyone. He is a mentor, mentor, guide, cheerleader, and motivator who speaks all around the country on how we can live our best life right now in spite of what's going on around us. His message is refreshing, hopeful, and something we could use a little more of. In his most recent book, What Will They Say About You When You're Gone?, Creating a Life of Legacy, Rabbi Cohen shares a seven-step process for reverse engineering your life, principles to create a life you can be proud of. Whether a mentor, guide, cheerleader, or motivator, Rabbi Daniel Cohen possesses a unique blend of authenticity, wisdom, and spiritual insight for contemporary society. His personal experience as a rabbi sharing hundreds of of life-affirming moments from birth to death, cultivating thousands of years of Jewish wisdom, and as a husband and father of six daughters, combined with his humor and humanity, provide him with a compelling narrative and a navigational guide of your life. Rabbi Cohen has served in the rabbinate for over 20 years and currently serves as senior rabbi at Congregation of Judith Shalom in Stamford, Connecticut, Connecticut, the largest modern Orthodox synagogue in New England. Good morning, Doc, Rabbi Cohen. I was going to call you Dr. Cohen. Good morning, Rabbi <laughs> that's Cohen. What my, that's what my grandmother wanted, but she was really happy I was a rabbi. But good morning to you. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Thanks for having me. It, oh, it's my pleasure. I really like your book. Um, I really like the way it makes Thank you. you. It's it's very makes it's very provocative. It makes you really think about who you are and where you're going, and I think that's really important. Um, you know, I wrote an article several years about ago um, about you know what is your legacy and what do you want your legacy to be. Mm-hmm. So I really think that it's important that we think about that. Um, so in your book, well, let's first talk about why you were compelled to write this book. Okay. Um, well, first of all, again, thank you very much for your warm words. It's great to uh, be here. I would say that the inspiration from the book came both from a professional standpoint as a rabbi and also on a deeply personal level as well. So as a rabbi, I certainly have opportunities to uh, be with people in moments of crisis, 
be with people at the end of life, officiate at many funerals. And I found, as I think we all do, that in a moment when somebody is experiencing a lot of, whether it's grief or their world is turned upside down, they and we all will think about what's truly most important. We know that our time is limited. The premise of the book is you're at a funeral, and as you walk out of the funeral, you have a moment where you say to yourself, I hope they speak about me the way they spoke about that person. It's really one of the few moments today in the world where people actually turn everything off, literally, to really listen a little bit deeply. And then when we walk out, we're motivated to think about what's truly important, to spend more time with our family, think about what is not only urgent but significant in our lives. And then I've seen it all the time. Within 15 minutes, all those pledges go out the door, and we just go back to life as usual. We get a phone call, we get an email, and then this life just continues to move until the next awakening happens. And I realize that if life is only a highlight film, we're missing so many opportunities to truly maximize the gift of every day and create impact. So I thought about that a lot. And on a personal level, I really live with this. Um, I write about this in the book that my mother passed away from a brain aneurysm when she was 44 years old. I was a typical 20-year-old without a care in the world. I went to go visit my mom's parents down in Florida. I was sitting at the pool. And then I came up from being at the pool, and I got the worst phone call of my life. That my mother had a brain aneurysm. Within 24 hours, she had a second one. And within 48 hours, she passed away. And in that moment, I realized deeply that life can change in an instant. And we can't take any day for granted. And I live with that. But then the catalyst for the book was when I turned the same age as my mother, who I knew was young. But when I turned 44, I began to ask myself, am I living the life that truly is reflective of the values that are important to me? I've been making the most of every day and both the professional experience and that personal, you know, awakening within myself led me to help people realize their best self now by going through a process of not waiting till the end of life to identify what is the kind of life that I want to lead, but help people identify what is your best self, what is the life you want to lead. And then I take people on a journey of seven principles to reverse engineer their lives so they lead the lives now for how they want to be remembered. <clears throat> this is so so important. Um, <clears throat> what are the reasons that people want to have a legacy? Um, I, you know, they want to have it for their family. What other reasons would people want to have a legacy? <clears throat> I think every human being has inside of them a, again, you could call it a higher power. You can call it a spark of the divine. There's not a single human being alive today that doesn't want meaning and purpose in life. And when we are quiet and when we're confronted by our mortality, it's just the way we're programmed. And no matter how many hamburgers we have, no matter how many vacations we go on, that's junk food for the soul. And at the end of the day, there's a voice inside of us saying that I want more, that I want meaning. And... I think that meaning is generated by leading a joyful life, a life of giving, a life of kindness, a life of courage, a life of authenticity. And um, it's not just a matter of, and I think this is a piece of it. There's certainly, okay, I want to be remembered well. I want my kids or grandkids 
to say something nice about me. Of course, there's some, you know, we all want that. But I think deep inside, everybody wants to know that their life mattered and that they left the world a better place. And um, that's really the goal of the book is to, and I say this, I'm not here to impose anything from outside inside of anybody. I'm just helping people pull away a lot of the noise and sometimes the, um, the things that get in the way of us hearing that inner voice that actually is there inside every human being. Wow. And, and in your book, I mean, you absolutely walk us through how to do that. Um, in the beginning, you talk about developing a prototype. Um, <clears throat> and you mm-hmm. give some, an example or some examples of, um, of people who have done this. So um, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what is a good example of someone who developed a prototype? Um, well, I would say that, you know, the story that I talk about in the book is kind of that moment of awakening with Alfred Nobel where he woke up and instead of reading the obituary about his brother who had just died, he read the obituary about himself and he realized he didn't like what he saw and he decided to take his wealth and endow the Nobel Prize. But I want to emphasize that, you know, it's not a specific thing that I can replicate in anybody else. In other words, you know, one of the questions that I ask people is, what's your prototype? So I say identify the five words that are most important to you about how you want to be remembered. And I'll share a story with you that sticks with me. Again, it's about my mom who lives with me always. She passed away over 30 years ago. She was a math teacher, a personal finance teacher in Atlanta at a Jewish high school. And a friend of mine was in Atlanta a few years ago and said he went to the school and there was a plaque on the wall dedicated in memory of my mom. And he didn't know my mom. And he went to, went to somebody and said, can you tell me something about Sandy Cohen? And the person turned to my friend and said, Sandy Cohen was a stranger to no one. And I said, that really summed up my mom. She really made sure that everybody that came into our house, everybody that she met, felt that they were the most important person. That's a legacy. And that has nothing to do with whether you are a successful business person or whatever you're doing, but it's the way you walk in the world. And identifying those, and it's different for different people, what are those values? You know, somebody said to me, my five words are I'm a... uh, a father, a son, a husband. And then the person said afterwards, you know what? I have a sister, and I forgot to write down that I'm a brother. Mm-hmm. And that process alone redoubled his focus on not forgetting about his relationship with his siblings. Because at the end of the day, we don't want to be, and again, this is a little bit cliche-ish, but it's true. We don't remember for, well, you know, I was honored here, I was honored there. It's about, was I a person who brought light to other people? Was I a person that people could count on? Was I a person who was kind? Was I a person who loved my family, who was honest? And those, um, and that prototype is just giving us an opportunity to keep that vision of ourselves front and center, not when we're, God forbid, on our last days, but when we have the ability to actually do something about it to lead that life, which will be a response to the call that each and every one of us has to lead a life of legacy. 
so you um in the beginning of the book, you talk about developing a life of legacy, and you give a prototype for um, a personal meditation. So I just want to read some of those things so uh, my listeners sure. have an idea sure. of where they're, uh, what kind of things they will be thinking of. Um, how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered by your family, community, the world? And, and then there's an area to write that. And then writing your own eulogy. If you had to write your own eulogy, what would it say? Um, and then there's questions here. So what would you do if you had 24 hours to live and why? Um, what is worth fighting for? In your life so far, what have you taken a risk for or gone out of your comfort zone for? You have five words to write on your headstone. What are they? When you're mm-hmm. feeling low, what song do you play to lift your mood and inspire you and Why? Is there a phrase that you find yourself saying frequently when you're under stress, when you're happy or grateful? Describe your best day or best self. What is your favorite Bible verse, poem, or motto? Why are you here? What is your life mission? What do you hope to achieve? What are your dreams, and how can you realize them? Um, This pretty much sums it up, and it really makes us think about who we are and where we're going and, and, and the legacy we want to, want to leave. So um, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, there's no question that um, you know, each one of these questions that you said, it takes a while just to really think through. And, you know, I think about um, there's a beautiful story about a, uh, on a farm, there was a, a fellow who lost a very valuable watch and he asked everybody to look in the barn to find the watch and everybody was running around, and nobody could find it. And they went back to eat dinner. And about 15 minutes later, a young boy walked in and said, I found the watch. And he said, how'd you find the watch? We had like 15 people running around the barn trying to find it. He said, well, all I did was I put my ear down on the ground and I listened for the ticking of the watch. And then I found it. Wow. And the truth is, is that in order to answer any one of these questions, it truly takes some discipline, which we can all do. Take a walk, be outside, turn your phone off, and answer even just one question. And I'll give you an example of the power of these questions. 24 hours to live and why. So somebody said to me, it was out in California, he said, if I had 24 hours to live, what I would do was I would identify those people in my life that made a difference, that helped me get to where I am. We all have that. A teacher, a colleague, a friend, somebody who introduced me to somebody. And then I would reach out to them on that day, And I would thank them for helping me get to where I am today. And after he shared that, everybody around the room said, what are you waiting for? And the next day he emailed me. I was already back in the New York area. He said, I've decided that every day I'm going to try to identify one person in my life that maybe said something to me that helped me, that got me to where I am today. And it has transformed his life because rather you know, every day waking up and say, what do I need? What do I need? He begins his day with a message of thank you to somebody. Mm-hmm. It helps him. It helps them. And his life has never been the same. I love that. That's, that's a great story. I do believe we should begin our day with gratitude, always um, mm-hmm. finding something that we should be grateful for when we, you know, when we start our day. You talk about um, the Elijah moment, um, and Elijah was a prophet, 
And the only way I know Elijah is because he came to every Seder we had. That's um, right. He did. And he, Wait, he was, he was, a, he was Seder, invisible. He was at my Seder. What happened? <laughs> he was kidding. invisible. Ahead, you open the door and you let him in and he drinks He's the there. wine. there. I and... know, I know, I know. Yeah. <clears throat> so who is Elijah and um, why is it so important to discover our Elijah moment? Okay. So, yeah, Elijah is a figure in the prophets. And um, according to Jewish tradition, he, he shows up at a Seder, a Passover Seder, at a circumcision. But from a mystical standpoint, and this is also related to the stories in the prophets, he was somebody who kind of comes to help give people strength, to encourage people as a bearer of hope. And I call this the Elijah moment based upon a beautiful story about a young student who asked his mentor, I want to see Elijah the prophet. I've perfected myself. I've studied with you. How can I see Elijah the prophet? And the mentor says to him, if you want to see Elijah the prophet, go into the forest. And there is a widow there with children. Bring food for the Sabbath, and you'll see Elijah the prophet. He goes in Friday afternoon, Saturday morning, Saturday night, still no Elijah the prophet. And he comes back. On Sunday, and says, you promised me I would see Elijah the prophet. And the mentor says to him, go back the next week, take the food again. I promise this week you'll see Elijah the prophet. So he goes back. It's Friday afternoon. He's deep within the forest. He's within earshot of the home, and he hears a child crying out to the mother, saying, Mommy, where are we going to get food from for this Sabbath? And the mother turns to the child and says, just like Elijah came last week, Elijah's going to come again. And it was in that moment that he realized that he was the Elijah that this woman was waiting for. Discovering your Elijah moment means that at any time, in any place, no encounter is random. And we may not be able to change the world, but each and every one of us can change the world of one person. And if we lead our lives with the sense of the possibility of discovering Elijah moments and creating impact, and maybe it's with somebody who we may not ever see again, but in that moment, we had an opportunity to reveal a little bit of light and love. Then we will be blessed with a life that is filled with so much. That, to me, is one of the key strategies to leading a life of legacy, is realizing that I'll just share one other story. Um, a number of years ago when I was up in um, West Hartford speaking to a group of women, I asked them, tell me about some of your most inspirational moments in your life. And a woman said to me, well, she was at a supermarket in West Hartford and Bishop's Corner. And as she was getting out of her car in the parking lot, she saw an elderly man with orthopedic shoes and noticed that his shoes were untied. And she went over to him and asked him if, he could, if she could tie his shoes. And she bent down. And as she was describing this, she started to cry. And she said, in that moment when, he was, when she was tying his shoes, that was one of the most inspirational moments in her life and when she felt closest to God. And I explained it to her. It was because it was her Elijah moment. In that moment, she understood that she was there for that person where nobody else could be. And Mark Twain said the two most important days of our lives are the day when we're born and the day we understand why. And if we lead our lives anticipating these opportunities, that no person who is in my area and who I walk past, who is a, at the supermarket, is there by chance. But if I can say a hello to them, if I can connect with them, then 
I will really have made a difference in somebody's life and the light will continue to shine. And as you're talking, I'm remembering mine. I had one that just just stands out so strongly. Um, years ago, my husband was looking for, um, he just, he wanted to get uh, like a an older sports car, like a Corvette or something like that. And he found this listing and it was at this place about an hour away from our home. And he asked me if I wanted to go with him to look at this car. And I really wasn't interested in going to look at the car, you know, I didn't want to, but he's like, you know, we'll take a, we'll take a drive. It's a really nice, you know, it's the woods, it's fall. It'll be pretty. We'll go and then we'll have a day. I said, okay, I'll go along. So we get there and um, it turns out that the woman, that this woman shows up at the door and she tells us that she's going to let us see the car, but it was her husband's. He was the one that put the listing in but he had died suddenly and she Ooh. was now a widow and she didn't really know what she was going to do. They hadn't even buried him yet. So, wow. yeah. So we're standing there and I'm standing there with the woman and my husband is looking at the car, you know, lifting, lifting the hood and, you know, checking it all out. <clears throat> And she said to me, I just, you know, I don't have any children. You know, my husband was my everything. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said to her, everything's going to be all right. You know, everything will be all right. So we talked a little bit. And, you know, I said everything will work out. We talked a little bit. And the phone rang. She ran inside. She excused herself and went inside. She comes back and she has this startled look on her face. She said, I know that you're right. I now know that everything's going to be all right. And I said, what happened? Was it the phone call? She goes, no. When I hung up the phone, I heard my husband's voice say, everything is going to be all right. Wow. <laughs> And then I realized why I had come. But it, mm. it worked through me. I had, you know, it was not yeah. something I created. It was something that came through me. And now I know that was my Elijah moment. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yes, I mean, it definitely, I like what you said, which is kind of it works through you. And that's really what it's about. I mean, you know, when we recognize that we're just, you know, agents, messengers, ambassadors, you know, and then we're here for that purpose. It is something which uh, inspires us to then make sure that we share that light in any particular moment. Yeah, it is. You know, I love to, I love to, to recognize when things come through me and, you know, Mm. we hear sometimes we don't even really know that something is coming through us because it feels like our own thought or our own voice. Um, but sometimes it's not. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, you talk no, about, uh... um, yeah, you talk about um, Sandra and Herbert and this note that was in your mom's handwriting. Tell us about oh. that. that. That's a really nice story. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, and thanks for reminding me of that story. So, um, yeah, it was interesting because I found it. Um, that's about the pants. 
Um, yeah, I think so. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, the pants, a, the pants, yeah, yes, the pants. <laughs> the pants, the pants, yeah. No, it's just a note that I, you know, my mom, I, you know, I was looking through some old things, and sometimes, um, you know, little things that our parents might do or that we might do for others are things that really are expressions of love. You know, one of the things that I speak about in terms of creating a life of legacy is taking the time, whether it's to write a letter or whether it's to create a memory, that stays with us and is an expression of love. And this was something where somebody had given me as a baby, um, like I guess a pair of pants or something like that. And my mother um, wrote a thank you note as if it was for me as a kid to the person who gave it. And it wasn't just a thank you note, but when I found that note, um, again, this is probably from, you know, well, close to 50 years ago, it's just a little note. But it reflected for me the power of a note to convey love, which still stays with me um, so many years later. And I think that's something also, not only are we often the beneficiaries of, but if we're thinking about um, how we can create legacies in others, that is, to me, a great strategy. You know, my wife actually just showed to me yesterday, this is hot off the press, we have close friends. Um, she lost her son in his 50s. Uh, and um, she wrote a beautiful note thanking my wife for making uh, dinner for her. And she said in the note that it wasn't just a dinner, but I know she said how much love and how much care you put into it. And then she just wrote one line. She said, it was a kindness that I'll never forget. And when I read that and when she read that, Number one, she took the time to write such a kind note. But I realized that how much love can be conveyed even in the written word and taking time to do it. And that to me is something also as a strategy for moving forward to take a few moments to create an impact and expression of love through sometimes the simplest of gestures. That's, that's a beautiful story. Yeah, that no, stays yeah. with me a lot. I'll share yeah. one of the story. I mean, it's this thing in the book, and um, it's called The Power of Creating Memories. You know, as a rabbi, I'm intrigued, and this is also something that I've thought about, is when I'm sitting with the family, getting ready for a funeral, and I'll ask them, I'll say, tell me about your mother or your father. You know, what values stand out? What memories stand in your mind? And it's fascinating because you know, I'm not looking for the biography that they graduated from here and they went to school here. I'm looking for impact and what stays with them. And I was doing a funeral a number of years ago for a woman who obviously didn't have a great relationship with her mom. And I asked her, I said, do you want to speak at your mother's funeral? And she said, no, she really didn't have much to say. She didn't have a great relationship with her mom. So I figured, okay, there's not much I can do. But we went to the graveside service and I asked her again, is there anything you want to share about your mom? There were maybe seven people at the funeral. And she said, there are two memories, and this is one I wanted to share. She said, I'll never forget, I was eight years old, and I was sleeping upstairs in the house. And my mother came and woke me up and said, honey, it's snowing outside. Let's go outside and play. And here's a woman who didn't have the best relationship with her mom, and she lived with her mom for 50 years. And the memory oh, wow. that stays in her mind 
is that spontaneous act of love that her mother created for her one snowy night when she was eight years old. So when I hear that story, I mean, we're all busy. I mean, everybody who's listening to this, you know, you come home to work, you get on the computer, you're running. And sometimes we forget about the people that are most important to us. It could be a child. It could be a friend. And you know what? It may not be in my plan book to spend time and take a walk. But nobody's going to remember all the other stuff that we did. But if we say, you know what, I'm just going to put stuff down. I'm going to take 30 minutes and say to a, a spouse, a friend, I just want to take a walk with you. Let's just enjoy each other's company together. That's the way a life is built. Nobody remembers the days of our lives. We only remember the moments. And the more that we could eternalize those moments, the richer our relationships will be and the stronger the memories that we create will be for the rest of our lives. I think that different things, different experiences, different words uh, resonate with people because I know that my children over the years have come up with things, Mom, you said this, you know, um, and they're sort of picking it out, but it, it, it resonated to them right at the moment. And in the work that I do, the coaching and counseling work that I do, people often um, tell me about words that they've either seen in my books or things like that, you know. And it's really interesting to me because it's always different. And but it's we all have um, kind of a different perception, and so different things do resonate with different people. Do, do you agree? Um, yeah, in terms of the way things will sometimes resonate with different people in different ways. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. And that's look. At the end of the day, it's hard to always know, but when somebody does something which is kind or generous or filled with love, um, that's kind of the universal language. And I'll find that people will definitely appreciate those acts of kindness in a very special way. Mm-hmm. So we talked about principle one, which is discover your Elijah moment. Principle two is make courageous choices. What is yes. that about? Um, what that's about is, you know, I think about the verse in the book of uh, Proverbs where Solomon says, I'm better to have a good name than all the wealth in the world. That our reputation of the kind of person that we are is truly actually what's most important. Um, Warren Buffett said it well. He called it the 25 principle. It takes 20 years to build a reputation. It takes five minutes to destroy a reputation. And I think we all have a desire to make choices that we believe are choices that we'll be proud of. And oftentimes, unfortunately, we make choices too often on either what are people going to think, whether somebody's going to be caught or held accountable. And making a courageous choice is an idea which says make sure that we make our choices based not upon our con- convenience but on conviction, not based on something which is we're pressured but on principle. And realizing that every single choice that we make, you know, life is not made up of big choices, but it's the small choices every day. Do I choose to be a giver or a taker? Do I choose to keep a confidence or break a confidence? Do I choose to be honest or to cut a corner? It's those small, and I call them courageous, because nobody's going to know whether we made the right choice, but we'll know whether we made the right choice. And that really determines kind of what our legacy is all about. One of the things that 
you know, I would say um, was a great example of this was in the Olympics um, in Beijing a number of years ago. And there was a story on the front page of the New York Times about something called a dolphin kick. A dolphin kick is illegal in swimming. The problem is, is that when people start the race, the umpires can't see whether or not they're using the dolphin kick or not. And they're not going to be caught. And the question they ask the swimmers is, if you know you're not going to be caught, will you still do it? And a number of swimmers said, and of course they chose to remain anonymous, well, if I know that I'm not going to be caught and everybody else is doing it, of course I'll do it. And that's unfortunately the way a lot of people operate. If everybody's doing it, then that's the okay. But there was one swimmer who was actually a bronze medalist from the USA. He said, I wasn't raised to cheat. That's not what I do. And that, to me, is a really important way to lead one's life. And here's the key thing, which I talk about as a tool in developing courageous uh, living. Identify your values. What are the values that you stand for? See, if people don't know what they stand for, what their values are, then every time they are morally challenged, they're going to try to um, do something which fits with the moment. But if they know what their values are, um, then they can look at the decision through the prism of the values, and then that will give them a sense of whether this is the right thing or the wrong thing to do. You know, it, and you brought that up at the perfect time because I was going to say, um, you know, what do you tell people who have had a past that they're not proud of and that they're known for? Uh, and they want to change things, but they're concerned that the past is going to be the the um, the one thing that people remember. How do we? How, what do you say to people like that? Well, I would say that first of all, I would empathize with them because, unfortunately, you know, a person reads, for example, an obituary in the New York Times or anywhere, and sometimes it's that one event that sometimes brought the most shame, that is the thing that people focus on. And that's not easy. At the same time, some of the most inspiring life stories are people that did their best to turn things around and were remorseful and tried to make up for what they did. And I would say, if you've done everything that you can right now, first step is to regret what they did, to try to make amends, to try to make amends with the person that they hurt, and that's what they've done. Now their responsibility is not to lament the darkness but to increase the light. And they will be admired for that, and they will be honored for that. And, you know, everybody's human. I mean, nobody's perfect. The mark of righteousness is not perfection. The mark of a good life is being willing to grow from mistakes, pick yourself up, as one of my mentors said, to fail forward, Nobody's a failure. Everybody may do things that are wrong, but we're not failures. It's a matter of how we respond to sometimes the mistakes is the mark of true spiritual greatness. And I would remind people of that. Um, and I, hopefully that would give them a sense of encouragement to move forward. So, and yeah, that's great. I, you know, and you were talking about values, and I think um, that that's a really good place to start for someone to, you know, if they're, if they're feeling bad about their past, to begin to examine their values and what's important to them and to work from that point on. So, you know, that's why um, 
that's where that thought came from. Yeah, so, no, 100%. And I think, mm-hmm. go ahead. Sorry. No, I, no, that's, that's really what I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, just spending time clarifying what those are. You know, it's interesting. There's another a beautiful story about, um, you know, really understanding also that what we do um, matters not only for us, but it also is a reflection on our family and reverberates into the future and a reflection of our past. And sometimes I find when people recognize that none of us are independent agents, you know, that we do make decisions that reflect on things. When we understand the stakes, I think that also raises awareness. I mean, we've seen so many times, unfortunately, on the pages of newspapers where families' lives have been destroyed because of decisions that were made in private. And thinking about the reverberations of that, um, number one, I think, can hold us back from doing the wrong things, but I think at the same time, it can motivate us to really uh, be much more um, courageous, good, thoughtful um, in making the right choices. You know, and part of it is one other point is it's really important to always go back to reaffirm what these values are. You know, nobody leaves business school thinking I'm going to insider trade, cheat the system, create a Ponzi scheme when they're 22 years old. Rarely does that happen. But what happens is they make one compromise, another compromise, another compromise, and slowly it leads to those things. And the only way to check oneself is to constantly go back to who am I, look myself in the mirror, what do I stand for, am I proud of it? And if it means that I might lose a little bit, but I still keep my ethics and my reputation and I am true to those values, then you know you're going to be remembered not for doing what felt good, but for doing what's right. Well said. Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) As a rabbi, um, this is a question. I don't know if it's necessarily related to the book, but it's something that um, I come across a lot. And many people fear that God is going to create a problem for them because of something that they did in the past. Does God punish us? Does God punish us? They finished the question when for something we did in the past. Does God, yes. Does does God punish us for things that we do wrong in the past? Well, I think again, this is from a Jewish perspective, you know, but I believe that um, there is a notion of reward and punishment. I mean, there is a notion of accountability by God. That being said, God is extremely forgiving and understanding and kind. I mean, God understands our souls better than we understand ourselves. And when it comes to, let's say, a transgression between us and God, I think if we express remorse and do our best to kind of avoid things in the future, I think God is forgiving. The very fact that we are all alive right now because none of us are perfect, is a reflection of the fact that God is like a parent, and just like a parent for a child is pretty tolerant and patient, and there's a lot of unconditional love there, that's the way God looks at us as well. doesn't mean that we're not responsible. It means that if you know, we're trying our best, God is very forgiving. When it comes to transgressions between other people, if I malign somebody, if I demean somebody, if I spoke gossip, if I stole 
that's not for God to forgive. That's for the person whom I harm to forgive. And I need to make amends with that particular person in order to achieve their forgiveness, not God's forgiveness. I like that. Um, you know, it's some people are so God-fearing that everything that they do, everything that they think about, um, they're fearing that they're being judged and punished or, you know, punished or rewarded or or whatever and um that's such a frightening way to live life you know i believe that god is very forgiving as well i believe that god is just love pure love and um and that we don't have to fear god i'm not going to say him but i you know i'm more about um i say god but no, I'm more about the great spirit or the higher power or whatever. Um, that's more me than, you mm-hmm. know, the God word. But it's all the, really the same. It really is all the same. Yeah, um, there's definitely, mm-hmm. definitely important to have a belief in a higher power. I think that, you know, I don't believe that it's, you know, to walk in fear, that's not necessarily, you know, I don't think it's a matter of being fear, but I think it's a matter of being responsible for, um, my actions and knowing that at the end of the day, um, there is a higher power to whom I'm accountable to me is, uh, actually not, not a, uh, a negative way to view our life. It's about really raising the stakes of what our life is all about. Right. I mean, we have a conscience, at least some of us do. <laughs> there are people out there that don't really have consciences, um, but that's a that's a disorder. Um, but but you know, healthy people, we do have a conscience, and really, that's what we have to live with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. So that guides us for the most part. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was so principle number five was find faith. Um, you know, if we don't have faith, how do we find it? <laughs> for people that don't really <laughs> that don't really have it, how do they find it? Well. I think that, you know, part of um, finding faith is, you know, it's hard, by the way, to find faith only in a moment of crisis because, you know, I'll give you an example. When somebody is um, filling up their car to get gas, you know, when you go into the desert, you know that it's going to be very difficult to find gas, but you got to get through the desert. So you fill up gas before you're going to go out on a long trip. When somebody doesn't have a relationship with God and hasn't brought God into their life on a consistent basis, it's not always easy to find faith when God is hidden and when life isn't always so clear um, and we don't really see God. So to me, the most important thing of finding faith is in the moments when life is seemingly good that we focus more on being grateful and bring God into our life. I'm a big believer that, and I say this a lot, I learned this a lot from my mom, from my dad, and it goes all the way back to Joseph in the Bible. It says that Joseph in the Bible was one of the people that it was one of the most faithful people. And it's unique. In the book of Genesis, he's the first major figure that it doesn't say in the book of Genesis that God spoke to him. It says God speaks to Abraham and Sarah, and God speaks to Isaac, and God speaks to Jacob. It doesn't say anywhere that God spoke to Joseph. But even though God didn't speak to him, he felt that God was an important part of his life. 
According to mysticism, Psalm 23, that everybody knows, regardless of your faith, although I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Those words were not composed by King David. Those words were composed by Joseph in the pit that his brothers threw him into when they wanted to kill him. He never lost faith. He knew he was walking with God. Yes. And he had a life that was filled with moments of being at peak. But he also, his life was tough. His brothers wanted to kill him. He finally gets taken out of the pit. Then he goes and he's working in an Egyptian household. The woman accuses him of rape. He gets thrown back in a dungeon in the most powerful place. Finally, he gets out and he struggles. But all along the way, he says, you know what? God is walking with me. If one door closes, another door is going to open, and I know that God is walking with me. And one of the ways that he was able to cultivate such a strong faith is it says that people knew that he walked with God. Well, how do people know that he walked with God? Because you'd ask Joseph how he was doing. He would say, thank God, I'm great. You'd ask (laughs) Joseph, Joseph, are you going to go to the movies today? Are you going to go to the supermarket today? Joseph would say, God willing, I will be there. So if somebody wants to cultivate faith, I would say one of the most important strategies is start using God language because it's true. How are you doing? Don't just say, I'm okay. Say, thank God I can breathe. Thank God I can walk. Thank God I can talk. Are you going to the movies today? Are you going for what? God willing, I will. Because if God doesn't will it, it won't happen. And then if we lead our lives with that God fluency and awareness, it will give us the faith, even when we don't feel God's presence, to know that God is right by our side. Yeah, I hear that a lot from um, the Jewish people in my family. Everything they say, they follow it up with God willing. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, that's good. Yeah, so I'm, I'm familiar like that. with that. Um, why did... Why were um, the people in the Bible, the people in the Torah, why were they able to hear God so clearly at that time? What was going on that they were so connected? Well, a couple things. I mean, we do believe that um, there was a different reality in terms of God's openness. I mean, look, you had miracles like the miracle of splitting of the Red Sea and miracles of the 10 plagues. I mean, there were a lot of miracles in the Bible, and I believe that they're true. It's God's word. However, you know, that's a question that people would ask. Well, why doesn't God do those things like he did before? And I'll give you, I guess, a little bit of a, a, a roundabout answer, but I think it's true, is that when somebody gives us a gift, well, let's say somebody gives you, I mean, you might disagree with me, but if somebody gives you a gift of a million dollars, and you earn a million dollars, which million dollars is more important to you? Which one is more valuable to you? Definitely the one you earn. 100%. So God understands that that's in our relationship to God. The truth is, when the Jewish people, and you read about this in the Bible, they saw the splitting of the Red Sea, they saw the ten plagues, they were at Mount Sinai, and then they worshipped a golden calf. At the end of the day, when... It's easy, and God is saying, hey, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. It may be, I would say, expedient to have that relationship to bring somebody out of uh, darkness at the moment 
but it doesn't create a long-term relationship. When I have to find God in my life, when I have to earn that relationship to God, and God is not saying, hey, I'm going to go split right now the East River, you know, or the Hudson River, but I got to find God in the everyday, then that's a relationship that may be a little bit harder to forge, but one that actually is going to be much more enduring. And that's the way God relates to the world now. He's been doing that for thousands of years. And that's, um, that is, uh, I think, why, at least according to a Jewish tradition, why God operates in a different way. Now, with everything that you say um, with the word God, could we replace that with another word? Um, would, uh, gratitude, the divine, would, would gratitude, higher, the divine, or right, or okay, the I divine, or gratitude? Gratitude is an attitude. I mean, gratitude. Okay. Gratitude doesn't tell me to lead a righteous life. Okay. Gratitude is gratitude is a strategy. I believe an important recognition of humility that I need to be grateful for a higher power, for the divine, for God, whatever you want to call, for right. a being. I did not come into this world by accident. Right. None of us is just an accident. We're here for a higher purpose. Every person has inside of them a soul, something which is divine, which wants meaning in life, which wants to forgive, which wants to be loved, which wants to do good, all those things. That's a piece of God that's inside of us. And it's calling us to be the best that we can be. It's calling us to be honest, thankful, grateful, impactful, loving, patient, slow to anger, all those good things. And uh, we have to listen to that voice a little bit more. What you call it, I think, is secondary. It's just knowing that it's there calling us to lead a life that is not just physical, but to lead a life that is eternal and spiritual. Okay, that's that's so that's so well said. I I like that so much. So um, this is a great time because so many of us are sort of sequestered at home. We're not really sequestered, but we're spending more time at home because it's safer there. This is a really good time to begin reflecting um, and to use your book to do that. So what advice <laughs> what advice do you have for us? while we are going through this strange time, this uncertain time um, where we just don't know what the end is going to look like? I mean, I think that, well, you said a couple things. I think that um, this moment that we're experiencing right now of COVID um, is a, um, an opportunity for us. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson said to... Um, into, in the pause to hear the silence. There's not a single person probably in the entire world that has not had their plans upended in some way. Things they felt were secure have, you know, changed for them. And it's an opportunity for us to kind of think a little bit more deeply about who we are and who we want to be. And one of the challenges is not to spend a lot of time lamenting the problems and lamenting the darkness and being fearful and being anxious. I tell people, you should get a worry box, all right? Everybody here should get a worry box. And in that worry box, you're allowed to worry about life for 10 minutes, whenever you want. Take 10 minutes a day and get out all your worries and then put it in a box and then don't look at it till the next day. Every moment that we spend anxious, 
that we spend nervous and with fear removes us from doing something positive with the life that is around us that touches us. And that, to me, is one of the greatest both challenges and opportunities. Turn off the news. The news, I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat, Fox or CNN, they're in the business of scaring you. They're in the business of making you nervous. Why waste your time? Spend 10 minutes on the news and say, you know what? I can take control of my life. I can make this world a better place. I don't care who the president is. My life will not be determined by who the president is nor who's in Congress. My life is going to be determined by God who gave me life and by making this world a better place in the world that touches me Mm. and by acting more in the light of God, being more forgiving, more loving, watching what I say. That's the way the world will become better. And this is really a moment for us to all realize that. Don't lament the darkness. Just spend time increasing the light and the world will be much better. Yes. Um, You know, I don't think that people realize how impactful they are on the rest of the world, how impactful their their perspective, you know, whether they see the light or see the dark or what they're focusing on, it ripples out. So each one of us is so important to the rest of the world um, and what we contribute mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. I do believe that as well. Yeah. 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 This has been um, this time um, during COVID, I have developed some really good practices, and I really like it, and I'm going to continue. I mean, I develop meditation every day, every morning, actually. I've developed um, a gratitude session in the, you know, in the morning. And, That's great. And I love it, and I really feel better for the rest of the day. Um, so, you know, I, I urge everyone else to take this time and to find something that really has meaning for you Mm -hmm. and create a new habit, a new, you know, whatever. (laughs) I can't think of the word. Um, But this is a great time to do that instead of worrying about, you know, where we're going because worry doesn't Mm -hmm. do anything. And I like your worry box. That's a good thing. Yeah. We can, if we, if if we only have to worry 10 minutes a day, it's like, okay, I'm all right now. (laughs) I'm going to worry later. Uh huh. Exactly. Exactly. 100%. You have to. That's, um, you know, yeah. We we just have to spend more time now. I think also just being more intentional with our lives and and how we want to um, kind of move forward for sure. Now, you do workshops, right? On I do. the legacy. I mean, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell us a uh-huh. little bit about that. So what I do, thanks for asking. I mean, many times I, and I travel now, it's much more virtual, but, you know, I'll do seminars on leading a life of legacy um, on some of these strategies. And sometimes I will do longer sessions. This is certainly easier in person where I work with people on um, really trying to drill down in each one of these principles so they can lead a life of legacy. So I do a lot of a lot of speaking at conferences and, and organizations and try to, uh, you know, take the principles in the book and bring it on the road. Because I do think that uh, there's so much we can accomplish in our lives if we stay focused on what's important and we tap into that frequency on a daily basis. A mystic said many years ago, my job in life is not to resurrect the dead. My job in life is to resurrect the living. And I think that's my job. <laughs> I mean, yeah. everybody here is listening is alive, but are we really living? 
And my role in this world is to help resurrect the living so we can lead our best lives. Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, your book is called What Will They Say About You When You're Gone? Creating a Life of Legacy, and you are Rabbi Daniel Cohen. So um, this book is available on Amazon and pretty much any any of the online booksellers? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Okay, perfect. And do you have a website? I do. It's RabbiDanielCohen.com. Um, but I give you a little moment. We are switching it over now to a new website. It was just redone, so it probably won't be live again until Monday. But uh, it should be really okay. nice on Monday. But if you go there now, it's kind of in <laughs> flux. <laughs> but RabbiDanielCohen.com. Thank you. Okay, sure. Yeah, I know that's an awkward thing when you're fixing your website and you're like, oh, what are people going to think? You know, when they go here, if they're going to get frustrated. But yeah. that's, um, right. but that's good. Thank you for thank you for letting us know. Um, yeah. We only have about a minute. Do you have a, like a quick message that you want to leave us with? I'm sure. I mean, I talk a lot. I'm writing actually another book related to this. But every one of us, um, before we were born, were created with a special light. The light is the secret to leading a life of legacy. And right before we're born, there's an angel that places its finger underneath our nose. And that light is buried deep within, but not forgotten. And at the very end of our life, we're greeted by an angel, and we recognize that angel. That's the angel that planted the light inside of us. And the angel is going to ask every human being two questions. Did you realize and reveal the light that was within you? Were you grateful for every day and did you realize your divine potential? And the second question is, did we share that light with the world? And I believe that if we ask ourselves those questions every day, did I realize the light within to lead a life of inspiration and gratitude? And did I do something today to create an Elijah moment and change the world of one person, we truly will not only be remembered well, but we will lead our best lives now and certainly hopefully come together as a community, as a country, and spread that light all over the world. Thank you. That is the re- really the best message to leave us with. So I want to thank you thank so you. much for being my guest today. This was just so um, interesting, so enlightening and inspirational and um, I'm sure that my listeners found it to be the same. So um, thank you for what you I do. Thank time. you for being my, my guest. Um, it's been wonderful. Um, God bless you. Thank you. Okay. Well, have a wonderful, wonderful day. Yeah, you too. All the best. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.